and welcome to paramedicine.com, translating research into practice. And welcome to our first pharmacology podcast, all about adrenaline. I'm Mark Polbeck at the ACU Recording Studio in Brisbane, Australia. In this podcast, I'm going to be giving an overview of the drug adrenaline. I'm going to talk a bit about the history of adrenaline, and then I'm going to go through the mechanism of action of adrenaline which means I'll be describing what it does in the body down to the receptor level so you can really understand what adrenaline is all about. Adrenaline is probably the best paramedic drug to talk about first because if you could carry only one drug as a paramedic, it would probably be adrenaline. I'd say it's the most fundamental drug that we use as paramedics and if you've ever met a paramedic who doesn't understand how adrenaline works, you'd be safe to assume that that's not a very well-educated paramedic. In the process of teaching you about adrenaline, I'm going to be using terms like receptors, agonists, and antagonists. So if you're not comfortable with those terms, stop. Go and review those ideas and come back to this podcast when you're comfortable with them. Prediscovery. Probably the first real-life experience to bring awareness of adrenaline to humans happened early in our 200,000-year history when our distant ancestors came face to face with some sort of frightening danger and experienced the nausea and shiver-inducing rush of energy we now call an adrenaline rush. In the late 1800s, scientists had determined that the source of this rush came from the medulla, the middle, of the adrenal glands. We learned this due to fearless scientific adventurers like George Oliver, who in 1893 had his son swallow the adrenal gland of a sheep and notice how it caused his son's blood vessels to become constricted. And you thought, your dad was weird. In the late 1890s, scientists were hot on the track of the active substance causing these changes, and there was a big race to be the first person to isolate the active compound and to be able to synthesize it. Otto von Firth in Strasbourg isolated what he incorrectly thought was the active compound and called it suprarenin. In 1897, the American John Abel, who we'll come back to a bit later, isolated what he also incorrectly thought was the active compound and gave it the name epinephrine. Discovery Then, at the beginning of the new century in 1901, Jokichi Takamini, a prolific chemical researcher in Japan, correctly isolated the pure form of the active substance and called it adrenaline, choosing the name that the British had previously invented for the as-yet undiscovered active substance known to come from the adrenal gland. Actually, in order to obtain the patent, Takamini called it adrenaline with no E to differentiate it from the commonly used British name adrenaline with an E, but that was for a legal loophole to allow him to get the patent. Everyone uses the E now. Also, interestingly, Takamini had to fight a lawsuit against him which put forward that naturally occurring hormones can't be patented. Takamini won, setting, for good or bad, a very influential legal precedent for medical science and the pharmacological industry, which later became such a huge part of our modern society. By discovering the exact chemical formula for adrenaline, Takamini became the first person to ever isolate any pure hormone from natural sources, and it was the discovery and knowledge of hormones which set in motion the research that eventually led to an understanding of the previously inscrutable process of neurotransmission over 70 years later. Takamini had a fascinating history. His father was an actual samurai who had learned Dutch 
and was one of the first people in Japan to study and practice Western medicine. The father encouraged his son to follow in his footsteps, but Jokichi decided he could make more of a difference as a chemist. And in addition to isolating adrenaline, he made many other remarkable discoveries with fertilizers, alcohol fermentation, and carbohydrate digestion that eventually earned him the epithet, the Japanese Thomas Edison. But let's get back to the American John Abel, who was the highly respected first professor ever of chemistry at John Hopkins University, who had isolated what he called epinephrine. Abel was incensed by Takamini's accomplishment, feeling that he had been unfairly scooped and continued to claim to his deathbed that he was the first to correctly discover the active substance. Partially due to the ongoing and somewhat unresolvable dispute between these two, and partially due to a very strong xenophobic backlash against Takamini in America, they burned down one of his factories, Americans continued to call this substance epinephrine, the name Abel had chosen, while the rest of the world uses the name Takamini chose and calls it adrenaline. That's why paramedic students today are faced with the fact that there are two names for the chemical C9H13NO3, depending on what part of the world you're from. As if medicine isn't confusing enough. Incidentally, both of the words, epinephrine and adrenaline, and suprarenin too, come to think of it, etymologically mean the same thing, only in different languages. Adrenaline is derived from the Latin ad, meaning above, and renis, the kidney, the same word that we get renal from. Epinephrine in ancient Greek comes from epi, meaning above, and nephros, the kidney, the same word that we get nephron from. So both words mean above the kidney, which was known to be the source of the chemical long before anyone isolated it. To make it even more confusing, researchers later discovered and isolated another hormone from the adrenal medulla, and, as it turns out, from sympathetic nerve endings as well, that was very similar to adrenaline. In fact, it was so similar, it took over 30 years to realize that the two chemicals were actually different. It was only then that researchers realized that the early medical experiments with what they thought was pure adrenaline were hampered by the fact that their samples were actually mixtures of the two. The new compound with the formula C8H11NO3 that had very similar physiological effects to adrenaline was eventually named noradrenaline. But of course, the Americans, continuing Abel's peak, determined to call it norepinephrine. The reason it's called noradrenaline is because it was discovered that adrenaline is actually produced by the removal of one carbon and two hydrogen atoms from noradrenaline, meaning noradrenaline is a physiological precursor to adrenaline. The nor originally was used in chemistry to denote the normal version of a compound. Thus, normal adrenaline is converted in the body to produce adrenaline, and the two are very, very similar. Both noradrenaline and adrenaline are used in paramedicine to treat our patients. Adrenaline is a vastly more common drug than noradrenaline for paramedics to use. Almost every paramedic carries adrenaline, and we use it for respiratory, allergic, and cardiac conditions. More about that later. Noradrenaline, on the other hand, is a very high-end drug, usually only used by paramedics doing interfacility critical care transfers. Noradrenaline is run by IV pump and used to constrict blood vessels in order to maintain a patient's blood pressure. 
It's a tricky drug to use, and unless you're a paramedic working at that level, you won't have to worry about it. For people just learning about pharmacology, the important point to remember is that adrenaline and noradrenaline are not the same thing, even though they do sound pretty similar. Post-discovery. In the early 1900s, a fellow by the name of Solomon Solis Cohen was injecting the newly discovered adrenaline extract into asthmatics and noting a remarkable recovery in what was previously an intractable condition. By 1910, articles in The Lancet were describing the use of adrenaline in which the author claimed, quote, marvelous results in the treatment of the paroxysm of asthma by the hypodermic use of preparations from the suprarenal glands. One injection of 10 minims, which is about 600 micrograms today, of a 1 in 1,000 solution, which we would call a 1 milligram in 1 mil solution, is all that is required, but may be repeated if other attacks supervene. End quote. Adrenaline actually became a popular fad for a while, believed to cure just about everything, and its popularity led to the invention, for the first time, of the glass ampule to house it safely as a liquid. That's where all of our modern glass ampules began. It was one of the most common medications carried in a doctor's little black bag, and it transformed surgery due to its ability to vasoconstrict a bleeding vessel and assist with stopping the bleed. It was used in many disciplines and, as noted, was revolutionary in the treatment of asthma as well as anaphylaxis. Today, it's not only paramedics that carry adrenaline around in the community. Adrenaline auto-injectors, called either an EpiPen or an Anapen, depending on whether you're an American or not, are carried by countless citizens so they can eject adrenaline into themselves in a medical emergency. So much for history. Mechanism of action. How does adrenaline work in the body? What's its mechanism of action? There are actually four answers to this, because adrenaline does four different things. The first thing it does, in no particular order, is to act on the blood vessels. In particular, it acts on specific receptors in the blood vessels as an agonist. Alpha-1 receptors. In our blood vessels, we have receptors that, when stimulated, cause our blood vessels to constrict. These receptors are called alpha-1 receptors. So, alpha-1 agonists will cause our blood vessels to constrict. That's pretty useful. If you're bleeding a lot, then using an alpha-1 agonist can constrict your blood vessels to help slow or even stop the bleeding. In fact, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this was one of the first medical uses of adrenaline that was discovered in surgery. Also, if someone has lost control of their blood vessels and they dilate the vessels all over their body, causing their blood pressure to plummet, then using adrenaline as an alpha-1 receptor agonist to constrict the blood vessels can help raise their blood pressure back up to a safer level, so you can immediately see why adrenaline is useful for someone in shock. It's also useful if you're intentionally injecting a drug like an anesthetic into someone's tissue and you want the anesthetic to stay in that area and not be carried away by the blood to the rest of the body. So if you're a dentist using an anesthetic like lidocaine to numb someone's mouth so you don't hurt them, you would use lidocaine with a bit of adrenaline mixed in to help keep the lidocaine localized in the gums where you injected it. In the emergency department, you'll hear that lidocaine is often referred to simply as lidocaine with or lidocaine without. They're referring, of course, to whether it's lidocaine with adrenaline or lidocaine without 
adrenaline. You can see why we might want to use lidocaine with adrenaline. It's pretty handy to keep the lidocaine in a restricted area, just like the dentists do. Can you imagine why we might be forced to use lidocaine without? The answer is that if we inject adrenaline into an area with a limited blood supply going into it, like at the base of a finger, for example, we might cut off the blood supply to the entire finger and kill it. So generations of medical students have been admonished to learn that you never use lidocaine with adrenaline on a patient's nose, toes, fingers, or hose. As paramedics, we use adrenaline's alpha-1 receptor agonist properties when we give patients in cardiac arrest adrenaline intravenously, or IV. Contrary to what most people think, we're not actually using adrenaline to try and restart the heart during cardiac arrest. Instead, we're using the alpha-1 receptor agonist effects to shut down the peripheral circulation, the circulation in the arms and the legs, so the blood that we're pushing around during CPR perfuses the vital organs in the torso and head. We don't really care as much about saving someone's toes as we do about saving their heart and their brain. You can think of adrenaline, then, as a chemical adjunct to CPR. By agonizing the alpha-1 receptors in the periphery, we ensure CPR compressions more effectively perfuse the patient's vital organs. The usual adult dose in cardiac arrest is 1 mg of adrenaline IV every 3-5 to five minutes, except in some special situations like, for example, when the patient is hypothermic. However, the laudable and extremely important Paramedic 2 paper published in 2018 has cast doubt on whether or not we should be continuing to administer adrenaline in cardiac arrest. So in the future, we may not continue to use adrenaline this way. Beta-1 receptors. That covers alpha-1 receptors. Now let's turn to beta-1 receptors. The second thing that adrenaline does is act on different receptors that are found only in the heart. These receptors are called beta-1 receptors. So we talked about alpha-1 receptors in the blood vessels, but now we're switching to talking about beta-1 receptors in the heart. When adrenaline binds with beta-1 receptors in the heart, it causes four separate things to happen. First, it causes the heart rate to speed up. Second, it causes the heart muscle, or myocardium, to beat more powerfully. Third, it causes the electrical signals in the heart to move more quickly through the myocardium. And fourth, it causes the heart to become more electrically irritable, which can lead, in extreme cases, to dangerous electrical dysrhythmias in the heart. Chronotropy. Let's dive somewhat deeply into some more med-speak. In medicine, we refer to heart rate as chronotropy. Kronos was the Greek god of time, and the root word trope means to turn. So when we're referring to how often the heart turns in a set amount of time, which is the heart rate, we say we are talking about chronotropy. And the substances which affect heart rate are referred to as chronotropes. Chronotropes that speed up the heart, like adrenaline, are considered to be positive chronotropes whereas chronotropes that slow down the heart, like, for example, digoxin, are considered to be negative chronotropes. Inotropy. Inotropy, on the other hand, refers to how powerfully the heart muscle contracts. In Greek, the ino prefix denotes fibers or sinew, and again, the root trope means to turn. 
So an inotrope is something that turns the fibers of, in this case, your heart and makes it beat more or less powerfully. Inotropes that increase the strength of contraction, like adrenaline, are considered to be positive inotropes, whereas inotropes that decrease the strength of contraction, like, for example, calcium channel blockers, are considered to be negative inotropes. It's important to remember that chronotropy, meaning rate, and inotropy, meaning strength, are very different effects. Digoxin, for example, is a negative chronotrope, it slows down your heart, and a positive inotrope, it makes your heart contract more powerfully. So you'll often see patients with heart failure taking digoxin in order to slow down their heart and make it stronger. Dromotropy. The third effect that adrenaline has on the beta-1 receptors in the heart is referred to as dromotropy. Dromotropy refers to how quickly the electrical signals in the heart can travel through the electrical bottleneck between the atria and the ventricles, which we call the A for atria, V for ventricle, node. In Greek, the prefix dromo means to run a trail or a track. So a dromotrope is an agent that changes how fast the electricity can run through the track of the AV node. Any agent which increases the speed of the electrical conduction through the AV node is called a positive dromotrope, and any agent that slows down the speed of the electrical conduction through the AV node is called a negative dromotrope. Adrenaline is a positive dromotrope. It speeds up electrical conduction through the AV node. Probably the most common negative dromotrope that paramedics use is adenosine, which temporarily blocks the electrical impulses going through the AV node completely, and which can completely stop the heart for up to 30 seconds. We use adenosine to try and slow down hearts that are beating dangerously fast. Adenosine is the myocardial pharmacological tool for turning it off and turning it on again when it isn't working. Irritability. The last thing adrenaline does in the heart is increase electrical irritability. To explain this, think about the fact that all the cells in the heart have to depolarize in a coordinated manner in order to stimulate the heart to contract in a coordinated manner. If the heart cells don't cooperate with each other, if they don't all wait their turn, then the heart won't work properly. Patients with increased myocardial irritability can start getting premature ventricular complexes or even have a runaway rhythm like ventricular tachycardia which is potentially deadly. So increased myocardial irritability can be life-threatening. That's one of the downsides of using adrenaline on a patient, especially if they already happen to have a weak heart. And it's one of the dangers we have to consider carefully before we treat anyone with adrenaline. Okay, let's pause and recap. We've spoken about adrenaline's first effect on the alpha-1 receptors in the blood vessels. Then, secondly, we spoke about the four different effects that adrenaline has on the beta-1 receptors in the heart. Positive chronotropy, positive inotropy, positive dromotropy, and increased irritability. Those are the first two major effects of adrenaline in the blood vessels and in the heart. Beta-2. The third thing adrenaline does is act on the lungs. In the lungs, we have different receptors again, which are called beta-2 receptors. 
So just to be clear, we have alpha-1 receptors in the blood vessels, beta-1 receptors in the heart, and beta-2 receptors in the lungs. Before you get confused about which beta receptors are where, you'll be happy to know that clever medical students from previous generations have come up with a simple memory aid to remember that the heart has beta-1 receptors and the lungs have beta-2 receptors. If you remember that you have one heart and two lungs, it will be easy to remember that our one heart has beta-1 receptors and our two lungs have beta-2 receptors. When the beta-2 receptors in our lungs are stimulated, they cause our airways to dilate and therefore be able to move more gas in and out of our lungs. Adrenaline is a very powerful beta-2 receptor agonist. Therefore, it causes the bronchi and bronchioles of the lungs to open up or, in med-speak, it causes our patients to bronchodilate. That's really useful when our patients are in life-threatening bronchoconstriction or bronchospasm, and that's why paramedics give adrenaline to patients with life-threatening asthma, anaphylaxis, or any other dangerous bronchoconstrictive emergency. Incidentally, most paramedics carry another beta-2 receptor agonist to help bronchodilate their patients. That drug is called Ventolin, that's the trade name, or Salbutamol, which is the generic name. In the United States, it's also called Albuterol. Salbutamol, which is what I'll call it here, and which is the next drug we'll be talking about in this series, works the same way that adrenaline does in the lungs, by stimulating the beta-2 receptors to initiate bronchodilation, and lots of patients carry salbutamol puffers around with them every day for when their asthma starts acting up. My youngest daughter has one, for example. However, salbutamol has a much weaker effect on alpha-1 and beta-1 receptors, so giving a patient salbutamol doesn't constrict their blood vessels or affect their heart anywhere near as much as adrenaline does. If you think of salbutamol as a gentle nudge to the alpha and beta receptors, then adrenaline is a powerful kick with a heavy boot. It's a much stronger agonist. That's why we tend to use salbutamol as our first agent in milder asthma, but we switch instead to adrenaline in life-threatening asthma. In these instances, we'll often administer anywhere from 200 to 500 micrograms of adrenaline into a patient intramuscularly, aiming primarily to have it exert its beta-2 effects in the lungs to dilate the airways and to allow the patient to breathe more effectively. So let's take a minute again to recap what we've covered so far because I know it's a lot. Adrenaline has alpha-1 receptor effects, which means it causes our blood vessels to constrict, which is very useful to help increase blood pressure, decrease bleeding, or make CPR more effective by ensuring the blood we're pumping stays in the core and doesn't go out to the arms or the legs very much. Adrenaline is also a powerful beta-1 receptor agonist. Beta-1 receptors are in the heart. Remember, we have one heart. And when they are stimulated, they do four things. They increase inotropy, heart strength, chronotropy, heart rate, dromotropy, conduction speed through the AV node, and irritability the amount of electrical misfirings we get in the heart. Okay, alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2, which we just covered regarding the lungs. We now have the first three effects sorted. Granulocytes, 
mast cells, and basophils. The fourth and final major effect of adrenaline in the body occurs at two different places dispersed throughout the body. In order to understand how this works, we have to start with an understanding of how our body responds to an invasion of foreign microorganisms. If foreign bacteria or viruses or other microorganisms get into our body, our body attempts to fight them off in a very, very complicated form of chemical warfare. In fact, chemical warfare is a really good analogy for what happens. Let's try using another metaphor to explain this. Imagine you are a general in charge of protecting your city from foreign invaders. In order to make this metaphor fit even better, I'm going to say that the city you're charged with protecting is Venice, which, as we all know, uses waterways as its principal transportation infrastructure instead of roads, much like how our body uses the bloodstream. Imagine that you've had a lot of time to prepare for the coming invasion, and you've managed to prepare a bunch of booby traps to stop the invaders. Let's imagine what would happen. At the beginning of the invasion, the attackers come sailing in through the water in various canals, or they parachute into the buildings on land throughout the city. The water-based attacks are the blood, and the attack on the buildings are the body's cells. In response, you send out your massive navy ships, bristling with guns and soldiers and marines, and you start attacking the invaders. But the invaders are smart, and they're small. So they start sailing into the smaller canals, or hiding in the middle of the buildings that they're in, in an attempt to outsmart you, figuring your large navy ships can't get into the smaller canals easily. But you're smarter. You already realize they might do this, so you have set small mines throughout the city to cause explosions, which end up making the canals larger for your ships. Those mines are set into the actual earth of the city, but there are also mines floating around in the canals as well. Obviously, all those detonating mines wreak havoc in the city, but it's worth it, because it allows you to get your large warships where they need to go to kill all the invaders and keep the citizens safe. Let's now apply that metaphor to our bodies. The canals are obviously analogous to the bloodstream, and the large navy ships are the white blood cells that fight off invasive microorganisms. Let's focus on the mines that I mentioned in the metaphor. Throughout the tissue of our bodies, we have cells called mast cells. Mast cells are filled with a huge variety of chemicals that altogether cause inflammation in our body. The inflammation causes our blood vessels to dilate, allowing more blood, and therefore more white blood cells, to enter into an area that's being attacked. The inflammation also makes the walls of the blood vessels more permeable, so that the white blood cells can actually leave the bloodstream through the vessel walls and enter into our tissue if there are foreign microorganisms there. So, when the mast cells are triggered, we experience a great deal of inflammation in that area due to the chemicals that sit waiting within them. There are quite a few different chemicals and they each have slightly different effects. If you're really keen on doing a deep dive, you can learn more about these different chemicals like cytokines and chemokines, but you don't need to in order to understand how adrenaline works. 
Just know that we have mast cells in our tissues that release what we can just call inflammatory mediators as a catch-all term. We also have other cells floating in our blood that release inflammatory mediators as well, and these are called basophils. So, both mast cells and basophils store inflammatory mediators in small granule sacs inside themselves, waiting for something to come along and trigger them so that they can explode their granule sacs, release the inflammatory mediators, and cause the inflammation which allows the body to fight off invasive microorganisms. Anaphylaxis. But here's the thing about inflammation. Sometimes our bodies get a bit trigger-happy and start exploding way more of these mast cells and basophils than we actually need. This chain reaction of exploding inflammatory cells starts to threaten our health more than the actual invaders do. For example, this could happen if you are stung by a bee and your body, sensing the foreign bee venom, starts exploding millions of mast cells and basophils, causing so much widespread inflammation throughout your entire body that your blood pressure starts to drop dangerously due to vasodilation, and your vessels start to leak fluid into your skin, giving you itchy red spots across your body, and your airways start to shut closed because of all the swelling going on due to the inflammation. This is, of course, the deadly condition of anaphylaxis, a dangerously out-of-control and exaggerated response to invasive microorganisms in the body. What to do? Well, if only we had a drug that could constrict the overly dilated blood vessels and also speed up the heart and help to increase our blood pressure, and that could also cause our bronchioles to dilate to make it easier to breathe. And while we're wishing for the moon, why not ask for a drug that also stabilizes the membranes of mast cells and basophils so that it is much more difficult for them to explode and release excessive amounts of their inflammatory mediators? Of course, that's exactly what adrenaline does. In addition to its alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2 receptor agonist effects, its fourth and final effect is to stabilize the membranes of mast cells and basophils, the granulocytes, so that they don't release as many inflammatory mediators. Adrenaline is the perfect drug to treat anaphylaxis, and that's why so many people with deadly allergies carry small cartridges with them filled with about 500 micrograms of adrenaline that they can inject directly into their muscles in a life-threatening anaphylactic emergency. Administration. As paramedics, we usually carry our adrenaline in glass vials, not auto-injectors. To treat our patients, we inject adrenaline into the thigh. Specifically, we inject it into the meaty muscle on the front, outer, or anterolateral part of our thigh, which is the vastus lateralis muscle. We aim for the medial third of the vastus lateralis, which means roughly in the middle of the space between your knee and your hip. It is possible to inject right through clothing, but if you can avoid it, that's better. We want to make sure we get right into the muscle, and we want to keep our needle clean. Clothing can interfere with both of those objectives. But if your patient is dying, then, as we say in Canada, 
giver, which means inject it directly through their clothes in order not to waste time. If you're injecting adrenaline into a child's thigh, then it's a good idea to hold the child down securely because they can injure themselves if they move while you have the needle in their vastus lateralis muscle. If your patient is obese and you think you might not get the needle through the fat layer and into the muscle itself, which is where you want it, it's better to inject into the lower half of the vastus lateralis because there's usually less fat there. If the patient is very, very obese, then an injection into their calf might be your best option for the same reason. In roughly 30% of patients, you might have to give a second injection. If you do, you should change to a clean needle and give the second injection in the other leg. If we put too much adrenaline into one spot in the body, we risk shutting down the blood to that area because of adrenaline's alpha-1 effect and killing the tissue by depriving it of its perfusion. It's also possible to administer adrenaline down an endotracheal tube. Although we typically don't do that so often anymore, it may be helpful if you aren't able to achieve an intramuscular injection for some reason. Adrenaline can be administered through an intravenous line or an intraosseous line, although we typically administer a slightly lower dose, and this is a technique that's usually reserved for more highly trained paramedics. The best veins to use are the largest possible ones, ideally a central line, but we don't usually do those as paramedics, so use the largest vein you can find in the arm. We try to avoid using veins in the legs, especially in the elderly or anyone suffering from vascular disease like diabetic endoarteritis, arteriosclerosis, or atherosclerosis. It's also really, really important to make sure that you are in the vein before you inject the adrenaline. So flush the line and make sure it's running smoothly and there isn't any swelling or coolness at the IV site that might indicate your needle is in the tissue instead of the blood vessel. A useful double check is to take your IV bag and lower it below the level of the patient's arm. You should see blood starting to back up in the IV line. If you don't, you might not be in the vein. If you end up inadvertently injecting adrenaline into a patient's tissue instead of into the vein, a situation we would describe by saying that you've injected the adrenaline interstitially, or perhaps by saying the adrenaline has extravasated, meaning it's left the blood vessel, then this is a dangerous situation that threatens the tissue you filled with adrenaline. If this happens, you should get a syringe and gently draw back on the IV to remove as much of the adrenaline as you can from the patient. Don't try to flush the line. You want to get the adrenaline out, not push it in further. Once you've gotten all that you can out, discontinue the line and remove the IV catheter. Elevate the limb so it drains and put a heat pack onto the IV site so that the blood vessels there vasodilate and remove as much of the adrenaline as possible. Because the adrenaline will be exerting a very powerful local alpha-1 receptor agonist effect and shutting down the blood vessels, you're going to want to use an alpha-1 antagonist. In other words, a drug that blocks the alpha-1 receptors and interferes with adrenaline's ability to cause vasoconstriction. A common drug for this purpose is fentolamine, which is a long-acting alpha receptor antagonist. However, most paramedics don't carry fentolamine, so if we eject adrenaline interstitially, our response should be to aspirate as much as we can, raise the limb, put a heat pack on it, 
and transport to the hospital and notify them of what has happened so that they can get the fentolamine ready at the hospital. Vasopressor. So injecting adrenaline interstitially is dangerous because of its local alpha-1 effect, but there are situations where we rely on adrenaline's alpha-1 agonist effects systemically to help our patients, and that is in normal volemic hypotension. Let's explain what that means. Hypotension simply means that their blood pressure is low, and there are three main reasons why someone's blood pressure could be low. The first might be that they've lost a lot of blood. Having a low volume of blood is described as being hypovolemic. So low blood pressure due to low blood volume is described as hypovolemic hypotension. And that's the hypotension that we're most used to thinking of. But there are two other reasons why someone's blood pressure might be low. It could be that the patient's heart is not pumping powerfully enough. They might have plenty of blood in their blood vessels, but without a working heart, they're still going to have low blood pressure. This would be an example of normovolemic hypotension. If someone's heart stops beating completely and they die, they won't have any blood pressure, even though they probably have a normal amount of blood in their body. This is probably the most extreme example of normovolemic hypotension, but it's definitely an illustrative one. Another example of normovolemic hypotension occurs when a patient has a normal amount of blood in their vessels and their hearts are beating well, but their blood vessels are dangerously dilated throughout their body and they are hypotensive because of the vasodilation. Sepsis is a perfect example of this situation. Imagine someone who is feeling perfectly fine with plenty of blood in their veins, but they get an infection in their blood and the chemicals produced by that infection causes their blood vessels to massively vasodilate. They've got plenty of blood and their heart is fine, but their wide open blood vessels make it impossible for them to maintain an adequate blood pressure. In this case, administering a slow, steady infusion of adrenaline will stimulate the patient's alpha-1 receptors to cause vasoconstriction throughout the body and help raise the blood pressure. However, before you try this, it's critically important to ensure that the patient, first of all, has an adequately beating heart, and second of all, that they have a normal amount of blood in their veins. If they don't, you need to fix those situations first before you start an adrenaline infusion. There are actually lots of drugs that you could use to constrict blood vessels, drugs that we call vasopressors. And which one to use depends on the drugs available to you and your local practice guidelines. But just about everyone carries adrenaline and an IV bag of normal saline, and it's definitely the drug of choice for anaphylactic hypotension. So I'll describe how to run an adrenaline drip for vasopression. The first step is to get a vial with one milligram of adrenaline in. Adrenaline concentration is still often described using ancient apothecary terminology for some reason, but we're trying to stop this. Adrenaline often comes as one milligram in one milliliter of fluid, which in the older obsolete terminology is described as being adrenaline one in 1000. Don't say that. It also comes as one milligram in 10 mils, which in the older obsolete terminology is described as being adrenaline 1 in 10,000. 
Again, we're trying to stop using this terminology because it's confusing and it leads to errors, but you'll still hear it. Whether you're using one milligram of adrenaline in one milliliter of fluid or in 10 milliliters of fluid, doesn't matter. It's still the same amount of adrenaline. It's similar to whether you have a gram of sugar in a tablespoon of water or in a cup of water. It's still just one gram of sugar. So take one milligram of adrenaline and put it into a one liter bag of normal saline solution. This makes a mixture of one microgram of adrenaline per one milliliter of fluid. Then run the bag wide open until the blood pressure comes back up. Once it does, cut back the flow to about two drips a second. If the blood pressure stays up or increases, cut it back to about one drip per second and keep on adjusting the flow until your patient is maintaining the blood pressure that you want. That's a technique that we call titrating to effect. Doctors and nurses will probably shudder to hear that we do this, and that's very understandable because the ideal way to run an infusion, any infusion, properly is with an IV pump so that you can very carefully control your infusion rate and be precise. But most paramedics don't have IV pumps, and there's no reason for our patients to die because of it. So crudely adjusting IV infusions like this is how we do it in the field, even though it is definitely less than an ideal situation. Asthma. There are some other situations in which we as paramedics normally use adrenaline. I mentioned previously that around 1900, Solomon Solis Cohen had realized that injecting about 600 micrograms of adrenaline into a patient helped relieve their asthma. And adrenaline is still routinely suggested as a medication to help alleviate asthma. Typically, paramedic CPGs recommend that paramedics initially treat asthmatics with salbutamol and another drug called ipratropium bromide, both of which we'll cover in another podcast. And if those drugs don't work, to then try treating the patient with adrenaline. Or, if the patient looks like they're dying, to start with adrenaline right away. Using adrenaline this way, despite the fact that every paramedic is taught to do it, is actually considered an off-label use of adrenaline, which means that the manufacturers of adrenaline don't actually recommend it. It doesn't mean that they say that you shouldn't use it this way, it just means that they don't specifically recommend that you should. Additionally, you might be surprised to hear that neither the National Asthma Council Australia, NACA, or the Global Initiative for Asthma, GINA, recommend adrenaline for asthma unless there's a clear component of concomitant anaphylaxis. So again, what paramedics do is not entirely standard, but that's how we do it in the field. I'm sure there's a good paper there exploring the discrepancy if you're interested in writing it. If you do, let me know. I'd love to read it. The reason we use adrenaline in this case is, ostensibly at least, for its powerful beta-2 receptor agonist effects. Bradycardia. We've talked about using adrenaline in anaphylaxis and as a vasopressor in sepsis or other vasodilatory emergencies, and for asthma as well. The last thing we use adrenaline for as paramedics is bradycardia. If our patient has a heart rate that is too slow to maintain a sufficient blood pressure, if they are bradycardic, then we will want to try and speed up their heart rate. Administering adrenaline is one way to do this. Typically, we would try some other things first, like using atropine or 
transcutaneous pacing, but if those don't work, then we're going to fall back on our adrenaline. In this case, it's the beta-1 effects of adrenaline that we are relying on to increase chronotropy. Our method of administration in this case is the same method of titrating to effect that we used for its vasopressor activities. We put one milligram into a 1,000 milliliter bag and we titrate to effect. Contraindications. Let's talk now about the contraindications to adrenaline, the times when we should not use it. Generally, we only use adrenaline in life-threatening emergencies. So if we feel that we need to use it, then we go ahead and we use it. The general contraindications that exist for adrenaline in less life-threatening emergencies don't apply. Adverse effects. However, there are adverse effects that we need to be mindful of. Because adrenaline's alpha-1 receptor effects raise blood pressure, we need to be careful of using adrenaline in anyone who is already dangerously hypertensive or in people who might be suffering disproportionately from relatively mild hypertension or who could possibly suffer from an increase in their current blood pressure. Such patients would include the normotensive or mildly hypertensive pregnant patient or stroke patient. Patients who are in thyrotoxicosis or diabetic patients or patients with narrow angle glaucoma shouldn't receive adrenaline unless it's required for life-saving measures. The thyrotoxic patient is already getting too much sympathetic stimulation from the thyroid-stimulating hormones. Adrenaline causes the body to release sugar into the bloodstream, so it can cause hyperglycemia, which might be deleterious for diabetic patients who are already hyperglycemic. Patients with a condition called pheochromocytoma have tumors on their adrenal glands which are filled with adrenaline. When the adrenal glands are stimulated by the adrenaline that you've given, which we call exogenous adrenaline, the tumors can release massive amounts of adrenaline in response, leading to an adrenaline overload. Patients with Parkinson's disease might temporarily have increased psychomotor agitation or a temporary worsening of symptoms. In addition, Rapid IV administration of adrenaline may cause death from cerebrovascular hemorrhage or cardiac dysrhythmias. But again, it's important to emphasize that none of these conditions should ever stop you from administering adrenaline to a patient in a life-threatening emergency who requires it. If your patient is in anaphylaxis or deadly bronchospasm or septic shock refractory to fluid treatment or profoundly bradycardic refractory to atropine and pacing, then you give adrenaline without hesitation unless you have a more appropriate medication on hand. Drug interactions. Cardioselective beta blockers may diminish the effects of adrenaline. Non-cardioselective beta blockaded patients may experience hypertension. Adrenaline will also probably increase the sympathomimetic effects of cocaine and cannabinoids. So increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, increased irritability in the heart, and possibly increased psychosis. Patients on monoamine oxidase inhibitors or MAO inhibitors, which are used to treat depression and some phobias, should be administered adrenaline with caution. The reason for this is actually fairly simple. 
monoamine oxidase is a substance in our body which breaks down adrenaline. So if they are taking monoamine oxidase inhibitors, it means that they won't be able to break down adrenaline properly and they'll effectively end up being overdosed. So that is how adrenaline works. We've gone from bizarre dads feeding adrenal glands to their helpless children while measuring the effects on their blood pressure to a trans-Pacific feud over a century old, which is still reflected in the two different names that adrenaline has, to the creation of glass ampules for the first time, to the first patent of a naturally occurring hormone, and to the amazing discovery of neurotransmission and the ubiquitous presence of adrenaline in every clinic, emergency department, and paramedic kit bag around the world. You will use adrenaline in your career as a paramedic. This will be your best friend when confronted with asthmatics, anaphylactics, and those in vasodilatory shock, and maybe even those with symptomatic bradycardia refractory to other treatment. I've gratefully used adrenaline to save lives, and you will too. I hope this podcast has helped you to understand not only its fascinating and unexpectedly diverse history, but also the effects it has on our body at a cellular level and how we can harness those effects to save lives and reduce suffering. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep on studying, keep on caring, and keep safe out there. Mm